for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what it means for us to be Christians, what it means to have our identity in Christ, who we are, what that means, and what effects that's going to have on our lives. Um, Now, just a quick introduction for those of you who don't know me. Um, I guess one of the reasons Graham asked me to speak, and also Stuart and Francis in the the next service, is that we work for um, a Christian organisation called Mission Aviation Fellowship. Um, It's an organisation that uses aeroplanes to reach out to isolated people in tremendous needs all over the world. Um, Ruth and I have had the great privilege of being able to work for this organisation for the past 12 years. Um, We lived in Kenya and in South Africa, so flying into places like South Sudan, Somalia, Kenya, Mozambique, a lot of the places that you'll see um, on the news. So we've had some first-hand experience of some of the things I'm going to talk about today. Um, That doesn't by any means make me an expert, um, but I'm more than happy to come and talk to people about it if there are questions afterwards. Um, so what I want to try and unpack and explore a little bit today is what should our reaction be to what we see on the news and what we see going on in the world around us. Um, if you have a look on the news, just thinking over even the last, even just this year, in the two or three months that this year has been going already, we've had Cyclone Pam in Vanuatu the last week, we've had fighting and war in Ukraine, we've had the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, we've had cyclones in northern Australia... There's a lot going on in the world, and it's very easy for us just to think, oh, it's completely outside of my experience. I don't know how I'm going to cope and what I'm going to do. Well, hopefully, a little bit of what I'm going to talk about this morning should help to guide your thinking and help you to have some way of knowing how to react. Um, the, the, the passage that um, Graham gave me to, to, to speak on is Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. Um, you might want to have your fingers ready in your Bible because I'm going to be jumping all over the Bible quite a bit today. Um, I won't necessarily expect you to follow me all the way, but if you're making notes, um, there's quite a few places that we're going to look at. So if you want to bring up the next slide, Bridget. Um, so if you're with me, um, we'll start by reading. Um, I'm going to expand this a little bit just to give you a bit of context of what Jesus was talking about um, in the, the passage that Graham gave me to speak on. So I'm going to start at chapter... Um, to Luke 14 and start at verse 7. And in the New Living Translation, which is the version I'm going to read from, it starts by saying that Jesus teaches about humility. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to dinner were trying to sit at the seats of honour near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honour. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honoured in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives and rich neighbours for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then, at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. So that is this 
um, last few verses here that I'm going to, I've sort of based what I'm going to speak on today, and we'll come back to these verses um, later on in the preach. Um, as well as obviously the Bible, um, the other, another book that I read in preparation um, for this is a book, this one, called Good News for the Poor by someone called Tim Chester. Um, I'm very bad at reading Christian books, if I'm honest, but I have read this one from front to back. Um, and he deals with the difficult subject of how we as Christians should look to the poor and how what our reaction should be and why also we should be reacting with the poor. So if, if any of you are interested, this is a really great and very easy read and a great place to start. Um, and he gives a very interesting definition for what he, for what, for what he defines as the poor. Um, and he says, that, he says this, he says, the poor are those who have lost their ability to choose, who have suffered breakdown in relationship, the most critical of which is obviously the relationship with God. So when we consider the poor, it's not just the beggars, people suffering from the effects of famine, but all members of humanity that are suffering the effects of a broken and sinful world and from a broken relationship with their loving Heavenly Father. Now that's quite a challenge, and if we really believe and agree with what Chester says there, it should radically change the way that we view the poor. Because it's not just about being physically poor, it's not just the people we see on TV who have nothing, but actually it's more about broken relationships and, and about what we can do as Christians about restoring that broken relationship. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us on a bit of a journey, I'm going to look at what the world's view of global compassion is, or one of the society's views of global compassion, look at what our reaction as Christians should not be, and explore why that's the case, and then look at what Jesus did, how he reacted to those in need around him, and lastly, look at what our reaction should be, both as a church and also as individuals. So if you want to go on to the next slide. Um, if you ask most people around you, and those your neighbours, people you work with, what their view of global compassion is and what it means to care for people, they probably would think of Africa or other parts of the world where there are wars and famines and so on. And to give you kind of an idea of what I think modern society's view of global compassion is, I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine. So if you want to press this, this chap here is someone called Keith Ketchum. And he has had a very small part to play in something that you will be very, very familiar with. In 1984, he was living in Ethiopia, and he was working and flying for an organisation called World Vision, who many of you will have heard of. And October of that year was a particularly eventful part of the year for him. Firstly, because on the 24th of October, he got down on his knees in front of his now wife, Rosie, in front of her whole school, of um, her classroom of, of kids, and proposed to her. Now... That's an amazing thing in itself, but the bit that we're interested in is what he was doing the two days prior to that. On the 22nd and 23rd of October, he flew three people who you will now become very familiar with. If you want to move on to the next slide. <clears throat> he flew, he spent two days flying around Ethiopia, flying Michael Burke, Mohammed Amin, and um, Mike Waldridge from the BBC around a number of refugee camps in Ethiopia. And as a result of those flights, on the 23rd of October... Many, I still remember watching this on the news. 
in the evening was when Michael Burke's report from, um, oh, what's the name of them? I've got the name of the main one, um, Coram in Ethiopia. And it's from that was Michael Burke's famous report which made the world stop and worked them up to what he described as the famine of biblical proportions in Ethiopia. As a direct result of, of that, and the little, very little part that Keith had to play in it, was Band-Aid and Live-Aid, which raised over £150 million in the late 1980s to help out with the Ethiopian um, appeal. And, con- and subsequently, as we know, comic relief um, and sport relief, which have raised a staggering £1 billion to date to relieve, um, to help with the effects of the famine and also for people um, in need, both across, the, across Africa and also in the UK. Many of you will have given to these amazing charities and the work they've done is incredible in changing the lives of millions and millions of people. And if you ask most of your friends and neighbours of their view of global compassion, this is probably the kind of thing that they will talk about. They will point you to that they raise money for comic relief and they run the sport relief mile and so on and so forth and help out with fundraising projects that have got a global appeal. And how should we as Christians react? Should we be giving to, 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 or to charities like this? Is this all we should be doing? Well, the answer to the first question is, I believe, is yes, we should be taking part in events like this that help to relieve poverty. But as Christians, our reaction and our action and our compassion for people goes much further than what comic relief and what, than sport relief are able to do. As Christians, we've got so much more to give than just money, and our reason for acting should be very different from societies. The world can act through genuine compassion, sometimes perhaps from a bit of a guilty conscience and through a certain certain degree of guilt. However, as Christians, our our reasons for acting are because of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. It's because we are children of God, because we're made in his image, and because we are free, because Christ has set us free and as a response to what God has done for us. We don't act from a position of guilt, Um, or some sort of feeling of obligation or feeling sorry for people or from some self-centred reason, our reason for acting should be because we come from a position of grace and of freedom and forgiveness. As Tim Chester said earlier on, we know that people's real needs go far beyond their empty tummies and their lack of physical support and security. Of course, these are very real needs for them and and important but as Christians, we know that people's greatest need is the restoration of a relationship with their Creator and their Heavenly Father. So, if that's a very sort of quick way of, of, of describing what society's reaction is, I'm going to have a look at what our reaction as Christians should not be. Do you want to bring the next one up, Bridget? We cannot be indifferent. We cannot ignore what's going on around us. We can't act as the first two people in the, Samaritan, in, the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan did and just walk on by. We can't just see people and not have compassion and not act on them. And the first reason is, is because we are all made in God's image. In Genesis chapter 1, we know that, that God has made us all in his likeness and in his, in, 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 and in his image. He made us all. He loves us all equally. And there are many verses in the Bible that confirm this. He knows each of us, he made each of us, and he knows how to give each of us good things. Imagine how much it must break God's heart to see people in need. And for us not to have a similar kind of view to God 
I think, is not right. And there's a great quote um, I'm just going to show you here from G.K. Chesterton, who I think puts this very well. He says, uh, next slide. Yep. Um, People are equal in the same way that pennies are equal. Some are bright, others are dull. Some are worn smooth, others are sharp and fresh. But all are equal in value, for each penny bears the image of the sovereign, and each person bears the image of the king of kings. As Christians, not only are we made in his image, but we are also new creations. We have his spirit in us. And it's been really encouraging over the last few weeks to hear Richard and Matt and others speak from Romans chapter 8. And I'm just going to, if you want to just, if you turn to your Bibles and can follow with me in Romans chapter 8, I'm just going to read two short passages and unpack them very quickly in the context of what I'm talking about this morning. Starting in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11, Paul says, But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember, those of you who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you, so that though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life, because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living in you. So we have God's spirit living inside us. I think it was Matt who was talking about the fact that that's like having God's DNA within us. We're recreated. We have God living within us. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17, um, he says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are his children. And since we are his children, we are also his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs to God's glory. But if we share his glory, we also share his suffering. So not only have we got God's spirit living in us, but we've also been adopted into his family. And... We now not only are made in God's image, but we have God's spirit in us, like Richard said. We can't be in both camps. We're either under the old sinful nature, or we've got God's spirit living in us. And we have no choice but to become more like God. So we have become one of God's children. And just as kind of a bit of an analogy for this, I'm going to introduce you to my dad. This is my dad. Now... um, Simon is always great at doing the analogy thing, um, so I thought I'll try and squeeze one in a bit to try and get people to understand it a little bit. I'm his son, and I have his DNA living in me, or part of, I get my DNA from him. Not only do I look a bit like him, but some of the core things that my dad finds so important in life, he's instilled in me. The fact that I'm a Christian and I have my faith is because he's brought me up, along with my mum, in the Christian faith. Some of the values that he finds important, things like hard work, not taking for granted um, what I have. The fact that, like him, I cry very easily, I'm quite soft-hearted, uh, I'm emotional, and being hospitable is important to my, to my dad. All those things I've taken on board because I am his son. Imagine how much more it is when we take on God's likeness with his spirit living in us. Now, as with all analogies, it's very limited. My dad's a Pompey fan, so we can't take the analogy (laughs) too far. Um, But hopefully you can kind of understand where I'm going with this, is that we take on God's likeness. We have no choice but to be acting and to be wanting to act the way that God does. 
So what does God care about? What, it is, what is it that is God's concern? Well, we don't have to go too far in the Bible to find out. And one of the places to look is Psalm 146. And in verses 6 to 9, this is what the psalmist says. God made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. He keeps every promise forever. And this is the bit I really want to home in on. He gives justice to the oppressed, food for the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among you. He cares for the orphans and the widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. So this is the character of God. This is what God is like. This is what concerns God. As his children, what does he expect from us? Well, in Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, I hope you're writing all these down, um, he says, Speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. So God expects us to carry on and act out what's in his heart. And if you don't think that he takes it seriously, this is the uncomfortable bit in the middle of the sermon. Um, In Isaiah chapter 1, God rails against the Israelites because they haven't done what he's asked them to do. So he's he's pretty blunt with them. He says, what makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. There's sacrifices that he's asked them, actually, through the law, to make. When you come to worship me, worship me. You are, who asked you to pray through my courts with all your ceremony? When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer up many prayers, I will not listen. Now, why is this? And this is why. Because he says, wash yourselves and make yourself clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans and fight the rights of widows. doesn't make very easy reading. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, oh man, it hits you right here. And if you think it's just the Old Testament, we haven't got time, but go and read chapter 5 in James. It's just as hard-hitting. Now, why is it that God wants the Israelites to act in this way? What is it that it's not just for no reason and... When God gives them the law in Deuteronomy, he tells them why he wants to do certain things. And I've got a couple of very quick examples. In Deuteronomy 15, he's talking about releasing slaves. So those who probably are from foreign countries have probably been taken captive. And it says, so he says, when you, when you release a slave, don't send him away empty-handed. Give him a generous farewell. Give him something from your flock, from your threshing floor or from your wine press. Share some of the bounty of what God has given you. Remember that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you this command. And similarly, in in Deuteronomy 24, when he's talking about harvesting crops, God says, when you harvest the crops, if you forget something and leave it behind, or you leave some grapes on the vine, don't go back and get them. Leave them. Don't go over boughs twice. Leave leave olives for for foreigners, orphans, and widows. And when you gather the grapes from your vineyard, don't glean the vines until after they've been picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. And this is again why. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I am giving you this command. So he's expecting the Israelites to act because God has acted first. Because of of what God has done for them, that is why he expects them to act. Now, you probably guess where I'm going with this. Um, but 
because God loved, we love because God loved us first. That's what the Bible says. And so we should also act because of what God has done for us. I, I know, and I've said it myself, a number of times seeing people um, begging on the side of the road or whatever, you oft, I mean, I'll raise my hand to this as well. You know, we often say, oh, I'm not going to help them. It's their own fault. What, you know, they got themselves into that mess. Why should I help them out? The challenge is to us, if, if God looks at us and said the same thing, where would we be? And that's not what God says to us. He acts out of grace because of, because of his love for us. And God also has a global um, element and a worldwide element to this. I mean, we know from Psalm 24 that it says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and the world and all its people belong to him. God's concern and compassion is for the whole world. So we cannot be indifferent because God is not indifferent. God's compassion is for the whole world. And because of what God has done for us, that's why we act. Now, what should our response be? Well, as ever, the great place to start is to look at Jesus. Um, And in Luke 4, Jesus... Um, so we can probably move on. One, we've had, there we go. Uh, and next one. There we go. Um, uh, one more, actually. Yeah, look to Jesus. Sorry, I've been looking at my dad for too long. Um, so if we start by looking at Jesus, um, his mission on earth is what he talks about in Luke 4, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see and the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favour has come. So Jesus has compassion, and he has compassion on a, on a, in a number of different areas. Firstly, as well as his concern for the poor and the oppressed, his, his desire is to see that the kingdom of God will be established. So his principal concern throughout his ministry was for people's eternal well-being. So as well as meeting the immediate needs as he did um, when he was feeding the 5,000. There's a number of, I mean, you just have to read the Gospels to see the number of times that Jesus healed people and he met their immediate physical needs. He also was more concerned with their eternal needs. Um, it, it says in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus travelled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness, meeting immediate needs. But when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. So Jesus almost always saw beyond the immediate needs, beyond the physical, and addressed their real need, forgiving people's sins and restoring people's relationships with God, which as we've already seen and talked about, is our real need, such as when he healed the paralysed man who was lowered through the roof by his friends. And this is where it gets messy, because Jesus was involved with everybody. So all the people, many of the people that he healed were the outsiders, the people in society that the Pharisees in particular didn't want you to touch, didn't want you to go near. They were the they were the dirty people, if you like, the, the, messy, the messy people, the people that wasn't convenient or easy to be involved with. And he didn't distinguish and wasn't affected by social niceties. He affected and showed genuine love and was filled with compassion for the marginalised in society. 
And again, as with his father, he had a global view on this. In his final words in Acts chapter 1, he talks about taking the gospel out to your local community, to the whole of Judea, and to the very ends of the earth. So it's not just an individual, localised thing. So if we're looking at what Jesus has done for us, if you want to go to the next one, Bridget? Let's, we've had a look at what we shouldn't do, which is to be indifferent and just turn a blind eye, and we've had a look at what Jesus did. The last bit I want to look at is what our response should be. So as a church and as individuals, and I'm going to try and make this practical, and at the end, I've got a little exercise that we're going to do. You can sit in your seats, don't worry, for those introverts amongst you, you don't have to talk to other people. The thing we should do, obviously, is we have to imitate Jesus. Now, that's far more easily said than done. But um, in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about being imitators of Christ, imitating God in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice to us, for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Now, as we talked earlier on, we've got the Holy Spirit living in us, and that is the gift from God to help us to become more like Jesus, as we saw in Romans chapter 8. And following the example of Jesus, we need to look to people's immediate needs and also their eternal needs. And remember that we're, act- we're acting from a position of grace, not from some kind of guilt or obligation. And we need to act proactively. As Richard has talked about, I know um, his phrase, I love, it's a, it's a faith that works, not works from faith. And it, rereading it in rereading that section from James in the kind of the light of this sermon, it kind of it's amazing with scripture that it brings out just a little different nuances. And so I'm going to read it again, thinking about what we've talked about already is what good is it, my dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister with who has no food or clothing and you say, Goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well but then you don't give that person any food or clothing, what good does that do? As you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. So you can feel sorry for people or have compassion and even concern for them, but that compassion without any action is pretty pointless and actually is probably dead. So what does God want from us? Well, a couple of examples is Isaiah 58 and also James chapter 1, verse 27, are pretty good starting places. This is what God says. A pure and genuine religion is the sight of God. In the sight of God, the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And what we've read, if we go now right back to the beginning, to Luke 14, we see that Jesus was suggesting a proactive approach to those in need. We need to get up, we need to go out, and we actually need to invite people in. Now, I'm not saying we necessarily always invite people into our home, although I know people do, and that's amazing if that's what you feel you're able to do. But we're acting because of what Christ has done for us. So as the church, we need to be a church, we need to be the church, and we need to offer what the church has to offer. The church what should be, and I think ours here is, a loving community where people find grace and compassion and acceptance and care. We need to look outside of our comfortable homes and see the needs of those outside of our own immediate existence. What the church has to offer is found nowhere else in society. Nowhere else can you find the gospel of grace that sets us all free and a lovely Heavenly Father that sent his Son to die to restore 
our broken relationships with him. John chapter 13 says that we will be known as a community by the love we have for one another. And the church needs to be marked out as somewhere broken people can come and find grace and love and acceptance. We need to be a community that's not afraid to get our hands dirty. Jesus certainly wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. But as we know, that comes, and that's pretty uncomfortable. But as soon as our, as soon as our faith becomes comfortable, that's not where we should be. Following Jesus' example will be messy, but we shouldn't be afraid to step out in faith and follow the lead of Jesus. And the church also needs to be somewhere where we feel safe and loved enough to try our calling, to be supported, to reach out to a broken world. We should be, as a church, we should be supporting those um, in whatever they feel that God is calling them to be that they can have the courage to step out and live the, live the lives that God wants them to be in whatever shape that is, whatever that outreach is, whether it's talking to someone at the school gate, meeting their needs for restoring their relationship with God, whether it's setting up a soup kitchen, whether it's doing ESOL, whether it's moving overseas, whatever it, whatever it may be. And as individuals... We need to not turn a blind eye and not be afraid to ask God what he wants us to do. Pray, invite people into your home, be proactive in your faith and not be afraid to meet and challenge people's greatest needs. We need to trust God and follow the lead of the Holy Spirit that we've already seen lives inside us. This, it may be a calling overseas, it may be talking to the lady in the supermarket queue, just following that little niggling, niggling thought in the back of your mind and you're thinking, oh, just come on Lord, give me some courage talking to the person on the train, supporting a child through compassion like the school do. It could be moving overseas. It could be working as a street pastor. It could be a million different things. But it's being sensitive to what God is calling you to do. And it's affecting those within your sphere of influence. I think Esol is an amazing example of that. Just seeing a need, responding to the call of the Holy Spirit. And we need to act from love. As 1 John chapter 3, 16 and 19 says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. So if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God love, God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we'll be confident when we stand before God. And that's not to make us feel guilty. It's just to show us that we should be acting from a position of love, that most amazing gift that we've been given. And be intentional. Be proactive. Look at what is around you and listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. So we can see that inviting people in, in the, in the bit we saw in Luke 14, is a, is a fantastic parallel to the invitation that Jesus gives us to the Great Supper. Jesus follows this section with the parable of the great feast when the host goes out and invites in all the people in society that no one else wants. We shouldn't be surprised if by joining Jesus' movement, we also join with many others whose society thinks far less of. So what does that look like for you? Well, we need to pray and seek, seek God's will. See how we can impact on the lives of the needy and the poor. And we need to think globally to the ends of the earth and be willing to follow God's call. Now, this is, that's a pretty scary prospect. I know we've been there, we've moved overseas, but trusting in God and following his call and being in the centre of his will for our lives is the best place we, we can be. And we need to be intentional about praying into what we see going on around us. 
We need to go beyond the headlines and pray for people situ- and situations. And be specific. Re- do, do your research. You can go online very easily and find details about situations that are going on. And we're going to do that in just a minute. There are many resources available to us. Lots of literature from people like Open Doors. That when we see the people on the news, pray specifically. And pray for them as an individual. Often you'll see the little banner thing on the bottom. This is such and such. Pray for them individually. And pray that God will give you a heart for what you see on the news and for a particular part of the world. And don't be surprised if by that your involvement will become greater and greater and God will work on your heart. Um, In this book by Tim Chester, he gives a really great summary at the end. and And this is what he says. He says, But we still have an obligation to care for the poor as we reflect the character of God, live under the reign of God and respond to the grace of God. Proclamation will be central to Christian involvement with the poor because the greatest need of the poor, along with all people, is to be reconciled to God, reconciled with God through the gospel. But the message we proclaim is best understood in the context of loving actions and a loving community. I'm going to um, finish by showing you a one and a half minute clip from the BBC News. What I want you to do is um, to watch this video and as you go through it, Pick out one person. There are a few people highlighted in this clip. And when it finishes, I'm just going to ask us all to spend five minutes either praying on your own with someone else and to pray specifically for the people that you see in this video. And then you can maybe try and do that when you get home and you look at the news or whatever. Okay? Great. Great.